whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. Coming to you from the alluring and autumnal St. Brain River, and almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kalb. And across the table, in the guest host chair today, we have an incredible educator. She's Fifty Shades of Purple. She is Violet Christensen. Violet, first off, what's good? And secondly, who are you? Well, Ben, everything's good. It's great to be trying something new here with you today. And I'm an educator at heart is who I am. I've wanted to be a teacher since I was in third grade. And then I taught third grade for over a decade. So um, I moved there to become a tech coach. And now I'm actually an instructional coach, as well as have the privilege to co-host another incredible podcast specifically for instructional coaches called C3 Connecting Coaches Cognition. It's super fun to examine how we can support educators throughout the system, as well as hear from experts in the field. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm just living the dream here, Violet. And you're kind of underselling your podcast. It's incredible and everyone should listen to it. We'll definitely link it in the show notes. Uh, But really, you're here today. You are in schools all over the place. You're in classes all the time. One of the huge goals of this show is, is to help teachers feel more informed, inspired, and connected. So let's give the people what they want informed. I need some out-of-the-box awesome ideas that teachers can rock in their classroom tomorrow. Violet, what are some cool things you've seen that teachers can try in this hybrid, virtual, blended environment? It has been so fun jumping into classrooms, being physically there, also in their WebEx, getting to experience it both sides of learning in our current hybrid state. And it's just been fun to see different ideas. One of my favorite from this week was I was in a classroom and they were having the kids at home and the kids in classroom compete against one another in math challenges. So they would have a math problem on their whiteboard and they'd say, okay, my kids in the room or my roomies, and then my kids at home, the homies, and they would compete (laughs) with one another and try to get the correct answer. They would compare their solutions, figure out if they had the same one, and then the teams in the room or the teams at home were encouraging each other either out loud in the classroom or via chat. on their their um, video platform. And so it was unbelievable to watch them really collaboratively compete with one another, but also encourage each other and really have all hands on deck learning and doing that math work. Homies versus the roomies, love that, love that. Uh, let's keep giving the people what they want. Give us something else. Another great one I think is very universal no matter what you're using is breakout rooms. It's been super incredible to meet kids' needs. I know I had some educators a little apprehensive at first of putting their kids into rooms, but now that they're able to bop between each room, see the ideas that are being generated, and kids can really truly... um, go beyond the borders of their classroom and be able to work virtually with kids with research projects or um, with summaries or anything else at home. And doing that collaboratively through both spaces has been super powerful to get collaborative research or anything else done. So teachers are loving breakout rooms right now. And have you seen that mostly in like middle school, high school, or what have you seen it? I have seen it across the board. I actually had um, a second grade educator tell me she uses it daily in order to meet her kids' needs and for them to work in small groups. So I think it's universal. It's definitely in high school. It's definitely in middle school, but it's across the board as a power tool. Totally. Love it. Very cool. One more that I've seen this week that was super amazing as far as just transcending boundaries was the idea of collaboratively building from home and school. So I saw the tool Mentimeter being used, Mm. and they had read a passage, and the teacher asked them to think of the main ideas within that passage, and they built a word cloud together live on the boards, kids at home and school can both see it, and it's showing them the biggest ideas within that small passage. And so it really helped to make it so that it was interactive for both sides and they could visually watch it being built. And I just watched their little faces, like their minds being blown, like somebody else thought that was an idea and the words getting bigger and rearranging as they add more ideas to it. That was one that was just super fun to see kids' minds exploding. Totally. Yeah. Mentimeter is amazing for building that. Another thing I've heard teachers use is, uh, and it's in Google's suite now, is called Jamboard. It's like a virtual whiteboard where you could, you know, kind of be collaboratively working in that way. Uh, You told me, you texted me another amazing thing that teachers are doing with attitudinal surveys. 
Yes. Uh, with a great attitude, can you tell me what an attitudinal survey is and how you've seen teachers use it? I have seen teachers use this after just a couple weeks into our model. They were realizing that they really wanted to tune into their kids' needs and figure out what are they enjoying? What are they not enjoying? What do they like learning at home better than at school? So the particular team I was working with, they found that their kids really enjoyed learning literacy more in person at school, but math, they were okay with doing that virtual. And they really tried to tap into what's the one thing you look forward to each week? And then thinking about what was that learning sequence or what was that activity? And how can I replicate that? How can I make that happen next week for them to have something else to look forward to? So really tapping into what your kids' needs are and letting them tell you and then shifting your instruction in order to meet that. So really using that strong formative assessment has been unbelievably dynamic in these grade levels. Man, what what an awesome way to be responsive, to truly ask your kids like, hey, what, what do you learn best in, in the 50 minutes you're with me versus when you're home looking at a screen? So Violet, you've already given these people more than the price of admission for this show, but we have even more surprise and delight coming your way because who do we have on the show with us today? Oh my gosh, we have the one and only John Spencer, the author of some incredible books, including Launch and Empower. He's the host of Bingeable Podcast. He's a keynote speaker at dozens of educational conferences and just all around an amazing person. Absolutely. And in this episode, we talk about lessons he's learned teaching college in a hybrid environment, how you can apply that to your K-12 classroom right away. And if you're interested, stay tuned after our interview to hear how Violet and I have used some of his ideas in PD we have done with uh, teachers. And without further ado, here he is. Um, Like George Curo says in the foreword of your book, one of the huge focuses of Empower is to shift from compliance to engagement. Can you tell us more about what that means? Yeah, so I I really think, um, you know, I view it as being about student uh, agency, you know, their sense of direction and, and control over their learning. And on one side, you have compliance where students are doing something because they have to do it. And that's okay. There's a time and a place for it, right? Like fire drills. You don't want people to like pull a Fleetwood Mac and go their own way, right? I love the fact that I can make a Fleetwood Mac reference right now. And it's okay because they've become cool again since, you know, the TikTok video. You can go your own way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's like compliance is you're doing it because you have to. And then engagement is that you're doing something because um, you want to, right? You have a high level of commitment to a task, a high level of focus to a task. And then empowerment is where you have that true ownership. That's where you are not only doing something that you want to do, but you're doing something that you've initiated, something that you're managing yourself, something that you have a sense of control over. So I kind of view it as a, a continuum um, of student agency. Wow. So it goes like compliance on the left. None of us want that, but we've all been like, oh, let's just get them engaged. And you're saying like engagement isn't even enough. It, it's the step beyond that. So why would engagement not even be enough? I think it's because, you know, engagement and, and, and by the way, there's a time and a place for engagement. Like we want students to be engaged often, right? So it's great to be engaged. However, if we think about our long-term goals for students, we want them to be self-directed, right? We want them to be self-managers, self-starters. We want them to be lifelong learners, critical thinkers, makers, all these different things. And those require you to be self-initiated, right? They require you to own the creative process and the collaborative process and the project process and all those different things. And I, I think that when you only go for engagement and you don't go further than that, what you end up with is someone who's dependent on the teacher to engage them, right? And so when you really shift toward that place of empowerment or ownership, that's when you have those, you know, lifelong skills, those soft skills that they're going to need for the rest of their life. I love how you're speaking to not only the self-starting, but also the management over time, because sometimes you have one or the other within students or even educators, but you really need both in order to have that really empowerment, right? Can you tell us a little more about directly using this in a remote or in a hybrid classroom? What does empowerment look like there? When, well, let's, th- let's think first about like uh, online or virtual and then 
think about hybrid after that. So if you think about just students are doing synchronous and asynchronous work from home, right? There are a lot more distractions at home, right? There's the Xbox calling their attention. There's social media on their phones. There's all these different things that are kind of gamifying their attention. And they don't necessarily have a teacher there to get them on task. And so I would argue that when students are in a model that is virtual or online, they need to be even more self-directed. They need to have even more ownership. And what I have seen often is that there's a tendency for students to disengage in these classes, right? We all saw this at the beginning of the pandemic when we, we first shifted into that like pandemic pedagogy and students weren't showing up to class meetings, right? They weren't turning in their work. They weren't, all of these different things were happening. And everybody was saying like, oh, that we, we have this real problem going on for, for student engagement. And what I would argue is that there was a lack of student empowerment and a lack of student ownership in those situations. Now, obviously, the biggest thing we have to remember is equity, uh, equity and access, right? Some students didn't have access to the learning. Um, some students were facing trauma. So we have to be really cognizant to know, you know, that when students weren't being self-managers, when they weren't being self-starters, it wasn't always, you know, a failure of initiative or anything. A lot of times it was, you know, the result of a, a pandemic and injustice and everything going on around them. But the students who did well in those virtual and online environments were the students who were truly self-directed. And so I would say when it comes to those virtual and online classes, we have to craft them in a way that builds on student ownership. So that means, you know, are, are you crafting some assignments, some mini projects that push students to pursue their own questions, engage in their own research, own the inquiry process, right? Are they getting the chance to self-select the tools that they use? Have you taught them how to choose the scaffolds for their own learning? Um, are they engaging in self-assessment and peer assessment? And the more that that happens, the more engaged they are, but also the more empowered they are. I'll just give a real quick example of, of where this works really well. I look at my, my oldest son. Uh, we live in Oregon, and everything is still kind of shut down here, right? I think of two different teachers he has who've built ownership into the process. You know, those are the classes that he's working on for fun outside of the scheduled class time, right? Those are the classes that he's just thrown himself into. And one of them is a subject he would have said isn't his favorite. It was Spanish, but but the teacher, you know, the students are using breakout rooms all the time. They're doing games. They're, they're, um, they got to help negotiate the class norms and procedures. They uh, are, are engaged in these mini projects in Spanish. And it's amazing to see how that class runs both in during those virtual meetings and then also when they're offline or when they're online uh, asynchronous. Uh, and then the other class is his uh, robotics class, which is fully project-based. Um, and in both cases, what I would say is, you know, the Spanish class is not very project-based, but it is very interactive. It's very social. And the students are constantly making the decisions for their learning and it's no shock that when the students are, are uh, not attending the virtual sessions, they're still forming study groups and they're still, you know, playing these language apps on their own. And they're, you know, uh, and so it can really work well in a virtual class and in an, you know, online situation. The students are facing so much loneliness and disconnect that when teachers craft that ownership into, you know, the, the virtual learning, the students tend to really respond positively to it. And I love that example with your son. I guess my question is like, to give student to empower students, it takes us as teachers giving up control. And this pandemic has so little is in our control that I find myself wanting to yeah. tighten down the few things that I do control. So what what would your advice be to teachers to get to that point where it's like, hey, you don't control anything, uh, which is good. And, and now we need you to give up even more control. What would your advice to your teachers be to get to that point? So I think, I think one of the, 
one of my thoughts would be to craft it in a way where you sort of take a gradual release approach to student ownership. And it depends on the grade level, right? It's much easier to let go of some of that control at the secondary level. I think it's harder when they're younger and they need a little bit more support. So I'd say that first. I guess what I would say is this year is likely to be the year that people don't focus as much on the test. It's the year that people don't focus as much on these different external factors. And because of that, we kind of have this year a free pass where nobody knows what we're doing, right? Like we're all experimenting and taking creative risks and figuring things out and nobody has it nailed down. And because of that, you as a, as a teacher can gradually release some of that control because it's actually a little bit lower risk this year, right? The consequences aren't as high this year in terms of the pressure and the test. And I mean, I, I, I can't speak to every single district, but I know so many places where the superintendents are saying, look, just do your best as teachers. Test scores are probably going to dip. If that's been the big pressure that's kept you from innovating, then this is kind of your free chance this year. And so I think that as, as teachers, you can sort of frame it as like, this is an opportunity to innovate and do something different and take that creative risk. And then I would say, choose something small, right? So, you know, this week we're going to try having students engage in self-assessments and that's it. You know, next week, uh, we're going to do a small wonder day project and it's going to take, you know, three days and students are going to pursue whatever question they want. And in a, a couple of weeks from now, um, I'm going to put together a curation of resources and let students choose the topic that they choose. And just kind of gradually as a teacher, introduce new elements of choice to your classroom throughout the year. And then by the end of the year, you've got this very much empowered student-driven class. It's unbelievable to hear you take that as a opportunity. We have so many people who are looking at this as the hardest time and instead thinking about it as an opportunity on how we can enhance and elevate our instruction for our learners. It's such a powerful lens to look through right now. And John, we were so fortunate. I've been able to hear you speak in person. Um, I have been able to read a lot of your works as has been. And um, we have gotten to really try to implement a lot of your works and a lot of your themes of empowerment within our district. Um, you really break down empowerment into different parts. And we thought it'd be really cool to kind of dissect these aspects to see why you feel each is essential and how you how they can exist virtually. If we started with choice, you really say it helps shift us from a culture of require to desire. Why is choice so important? Can you help drill us in a little bit more there? So I think there's a couple of things that I like about student choice. One is that it it just gives the students a sense of control. And from sort of an SEL lens, it like eases their anxiety a little bit, right? And so, you know, I taught when I taught middle school, uh, I taught ELL. Starting with student choice in ELL was so huge because we have that whole affective filter that they talk about in, you know, when someone is a second language learner. And that was significant because students having that sense of control um, made it easier for them to do kind of the harder work of learning a new language. The other thing that I love about choice is it allows students to build on their own expertise, right? So uh, if they're choosing the topics that they're going to um, write about, for example, we know that background knowledge is critical for success in writing. Well, if, if they get that opportunity to build on their own expertise, then they can improve in their skills while at the same time building on that kind of strengths-based approach. So I think for me, the, the sense of control and building on student expertise are kind of the, I, I guess, why at a basic level choice works so well. And, and how, you know, I, I think of you as a, a college professor, how do you work choice into what you teach and how you teach? Oh, I love that. Um, you know, it really depends on the class, you know, like, I'll, I'll give a more narrowed down version because we have to work within constraints. So, you know, we have this class where 
teachers work on their ed TPA. They learn about lesson planning, you know, and it's very much, I guess I would say like teaching to the test. We kind of have to, you have to work within that. So in that class, we do a lot of uh, choice menus, right? And it's just like I would with middle schoolers, right? It's, uh, it's virtual. You do a choice menu, you select the objective, the task, and the resource, it's all curated for them. And we, you know, we do choice menus. It's letting them choose how they um, organize information. It's giving them choices. It's, you know, putting together a curation of scaffolds. So there's sentence stems, there's tutorials, and they self-select whichever ones they use. And so in a, in a tighter class, you know, that's what it looks like at the university level. But then I think about our social studies pedagogy class, right? And, and the very first class, I introduced them to like seven different models. There's game-based learning, inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, things like that. We work through it and there's a ton of choice built into it because they're practicing the kind of pedagogy that they're going to design. But then in their second pedagogy class, I basically say, here are the seven course goals. Based on those course goals, what do you all want to learn? And together as a class, we form the syllabus. So it's 100% choice-based. And so it's much more advanced, right? So again, if we think about the three different courses, one was much more tight. So it's, it's, it's adding choice menus, and it's letting you select how you take notes, and it's letting you decide how you present information. And you know that's uh, asking them to come up with their own questions. But it's it's a little bit tighter versus the second pedagogy class, which is much more student centered versus the third one where the students themselves are really forming what kind of class they want to create. Nice to see the continuum of how you can still incorporate choice within the classroom. And it's beautiful to hear how you really involve your students in being the architects of the learning experience collaboratively. That's super powerful. You kind of touched on this, John, as far as how they're creating, but another layer within your empowerment is creation. And can you tell us more about why is student making so vitally important? So I think it's really important that students um, own the creative process because you know, if we want them to be makers, problem solvers, um, you know, lifelong learners, they're going to need that. You know, in, in our book, Empower, I talked about how, you know, there was this formula that kids were taught for years. You go to school, you do well in school, you go to university, um, you do well at the university, and you climb the corporate ladder, right? But our world is unpredictable, and the ladder has now become a maze, and I want to recognize, you know, one of the things I didn't, I, I, I feel like we didn't spell out very well in the book is, you know, the formula that we were, we were taught was never completely available to everyone. If, if you were a person of color, if you were a woman, if you were any kind of gender minority, then a lot of times that formula wasn't even uh, available to you in the same way. So I, I want to recognize that ahead of time. But given that reality, you know, that's what everyone was taught. And now the ladder's gone and it's a maze. And in order to navigate that maze, students are going to have to think creatively and they're going to have to engage in meaningful collaboration and they're going to have to figure out how to move on when they hit another spot in the maze. And given that reality, I think student ownership of the creative process is huge. And that means learning how to think divergently. That means learning how to curate information. That means learning how to iterate and improve. And I love the example that Chris Lehman says of, you know, if you assign 30 projects and get back 30 of the exact same thing, that's not project-based learning. That's recipe-based learning, right? And so as we think about student ownership of the creative process, I think what they're learning is those transferable skills that they'll use forever in any industry that they get into as they navigate that maze. Man, I love the line of, it's not a ladder anymore, it's a maze. And you talk all in your book about how we we talk about mindsets all the time, that now it's a self-directed mindset that our, our students need because that's the only way you're going to get through this maze. Um, how, how have like food trucks, you have a cool analogy about food trucks and what they have to teach us um, about these kind of things. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, I, I uh, obviously like 
being in the Pacific Northwest, like food trucks and, and foodie culture is like huge here. So uh, I love, uh, love food trucks. I think I wrote the first blog post about that a long time ago, probably five or six years ago. One of the things that you think about for food trucks is they work really well within the constraint that they're given, right? A food truck is inherently smaller. There's fewer materials and resources. They're out in the community instead of having the community go to them. They are often connecting to the local community, right? There's often local flavors and and materials they have to iterate and improve on the fly. And so as you think about it from a very practical standpoint, right now during this time of quarantine, the restaurants are struggling, but food trucks are actually doing well. They're sort of the part of the food industry that's proven to be really resilient. And I think it's because they work so well within those constraints and they can be outdoors, they can be out there and everything. And and for me, I really think that the food truck mindset as as teachers is what happens when we say, look, I'm going to experiment and see if it works. I'm not going to plan, you know, this massive year long plan when we don't know what the year is going to look like. I'm, we're going to improve on the fly. We're going to work within the constraints. We're going to choose to do fewer things and do it really well. I think that's one of the things that food trucks do a, an amazing job at is constantly you're choosing those few things that they're going to do and do those things really, really well. Um, And I think that that's the same thing that teachers are doing right now. A lot of us are are food trucking it and amazing things are happening, you know, despite the challenges. That doing few things better is so vital in this moment. I think as educators, we always want to do everything well and we want to make sure that we're doing everything for every child and every every spot. And so really giving yourself that grace to be flexible and to be able to focus and have more um, laser-like focus on what's needed. That's powerful. John, you talk a lot about when we think about um, this food truck and think about how is it successful? How do we know we're being successful? If we're thinking about the assessment side of things, another one of your strands um, with empowered learners and shifting from taking assessments to really assessing your learning as you're going, can you speak a little more to that? Yeah, so I, I really think, you know, one of the things that we know about assessment is, the, you know, what it, I guess, what is the purpose of it? And uh, obviously, it helps you as a teacher design instruction. It helps you figure out where students are in terms of the learning targets and the, and the standards. But there's this other layer where, you know, assessment is designed for the student, and it's designed um, so students know you know, where should they be? Um, where are they going? Um, where are they? You know, what are they doing well? Where, what, where, what areas could they be improving in? And, and what are the next steps they need to take? And I think, you know, in a physical classroom, it's important that we build that ownership that, so that all students know, you know, where, where they're going, uh, what their next steps are, um, where they are in terms of their proficiency, but I think when we shift into hybrid and virtual spaces, it's even more important, right? Because now you as a teacher aren't physically there all the time. And so I think it's important that students are constantly thinking about, I guess, just engaged in that, that frequent self-assessment. And I want to you know, make a quick distinction. You know, this doesn't necessarily mean the students are always taking assessments, it's often a checklist. It's often a concept map that they do. It's a self-reflection that they do at the very end. It's informal. It's fast. It's usable. Um, you know, it, it's the idea of having students look at a rubric and turn it into a checklist and then use that as a diagnostic tool. It's the idea of giving quick peer feedback to one another. It, it, that's what I think it is. And the hard part is, as teachers recognizing that when we let go of some of the control in assessment, there's going to be a little more mystery. There's going to be a little more fuzziness involved, right? If, if we've been viewing assessment as very hard and, and objective, then when student ownership happens, it's going to be a little bit harder to gauge and that's, that's okay. Yeah, that, it is. It is harder, and that definitely is okay. And 
I love the all these shifts that you talk about that they're not revolutionary changing everything but they're just little shifts that that we're making over time from teacher controlling the assessment to students assessing their own learning um, one of the other shifts that I love that you mentioned is how empowered learners look at failure um, can you talk about that yeah so you know if you think about we make the distinction between f- failure and failing right so failing is temporary failure is is permanent right and um, we don't want students to em- embrace failure, right? Like, if you're embracing failure, it's the, you're the Dallas Cowboys, right? But failing is just a part of the process. It's um, a mistake. It's an iteration. It's a chance to improve. It, it doesn't make it any less easy. Like, I, I do think, you know, in our book, we probably didn't do as good of a job as, as we could have addressing the emotional side of it. When students really love the project that they're working on, when they're excited about it and they hit a place of failure, like there will be tears, there will be frustration, there will be, you know, hard moments. But it's saying, look, I am failing right now and I'm going going to continue through this process until I've I've got it. That's that's where they develop that growth mindset. That's where they develop that that grit. And one of the things that I, I really believe is that you you can't develop that grit unless you first experience slack. So I think as a teacher, what this means is, and this was a really hard counterintuitive thing for me to recognize, is that if I want to hold my students to a higher standard, I need to give them more permission to fail, right? So it felt like I was dropping my standards to say, you can resubmit your work as many times as you need to until you've got it right. And I'm not going to average the scores. I'm going to give you the higher score. You have permission for this to totally and epically fail on this project and then continue working on it until you get it right. That felt like I was like watering it down or, or, or letting students get away with doing less. And eventually I realized, like, no, actually giving people the permission to have that stage of failing ultimately allows them to succeed and develop that, that grit. And how, how much more so does that same concept apply to us right now as we're building this plane and flying it at the same time, we need to give ourselves permission to, we're not, we're not, we didn't experience a failure. We might have made a mistake. We may have had a a failure, but we're not going to ultimately let it end with that. Yeah. And and one of the things as teachers is like even when we feel like we're doing well, I mean this is the thing that I had told like every everybody is like we all I don't know if you all feel this way, but I mean I I feel like everyone right now feels like we're first year teachers all over again, right? I help professors at my university learn how to do um, you know virtual class meetings and I, I was you know, working on trainings with them and, and, and helping them and all, all this kind of stuff. And yet I remember a day where I taught in the morning. It was a, a four hour class in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was going to work with professors on how to do virtual meetings. And my lesson tanked so bad that I just left it going, oh my gosh, why am I even, you know, teaching professors how to do you know virtual class meetings when i i royally screwed this up you know and it was a classroom management class i'd never taught it before and it was had never been done virtually before and i'm doing voice in space proximity and i'm trying to do it via zoom which is not how you teach voice in space proximity you know you create a video you go flip the video model you know, I, I analyzed everything that went wrong and I just felt like this epic failure as a professor. Right. And then I realized afterwards, like, wait a second, this, I'm going to take this lesson and that's going to be our warm up with these professors where, yeah, I'm going to model some best practices together with them, but I'm going to have them like do an extreme home makeover with my really bad lesson that I taught. And I gave it to them and suddenly when we, when I did that, everybody admitted 
that we all had these uh, lessons that tanked, right? And suddenly we're workshopping together, you know, these these online and, and virtual lessons that we taught that didn't go perfectly. And it was this reminder, I guess, that like we are all new at this. We're all first-year teachers right now. We're all, you know, um, whether it's the first time that we've taught virtually or it's the first time that we taught a particular class virtually or it's just a, a new group of students that we have, we're new at this and mistakes are going to happen. It's beautiful to say that even someone who's been in education for so long and, and spoken in front of so many groups and we all admire your work. You're still embracing that we all have a dumpster fire at some point, and especially in, right in a hybrid land, there may be more dumpster <laughs> fires than we like. That is the one point. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean like those. Yeah, we all have those moments, those dumpster fire moments. Well, and just exactly. giving ourselves that grace to be okay with that. We ask our students to do that all the time, but as the quote professionals. We sometimes don't give ourselves the time and space to actually embrace the suck, if you will, sometimes and just pivot and adjust. And it's, it's beautiful to hear that even you are loosening those reins for your students and for us to give ourselves the permissions to do that. Um, I love that idea of the first year teacher. I had um, a 32nd year teacher tell me this week, she goes, it almost would be easier if it was my first year because I wouldn't have that preconception as to where I want to be or how I want it to look. Um, so I just love that you're a wealth of knowledge and you're helping educators embrace these new tactics and styles and mindsets. Can you tell us any other general tips or um, tricks that you have found for hybrid or virtual learning? Yeah. So, I mean, one of, one of my thoughts for, um, for hybrid is um, to really think strategically about what type of hybrid model you're going to have. Um, I wrote a, a blog post. I don't have the URL with me right now, but like I, I wrote a blog post of, um, about the different types of hybrid models that, that you can um, that you can do. And I think thinking strategically about the model makes a huge difference. And, and saying like, what will the model be, and how will we do this as well as we possibly can? I kind of compared hybrid learning to like a spork. Right. Like it, it doesn't work as well as a fork. It doesn't work as well as a spoon, but it's the best thing you've got, which is a spork. But that being said, like there there can be some really fun ways to do hybrid learning well, where you take advantage of the fact that some kids are at home and have them do some tasks at home that are meaningful to students who are physically there. You know, you take an approach that that looks at the opportunity of being anywhere in, in, at any time, you know, for the students who are not physically there at the moment. And, you know, you leverage that for something that's a little bit different and creative. And then I, I think, though, for the advice I would give for anyone who's in that place of virtual or hybrid, and this isn't really practical advice necessarily, it's just more more the mindset to recognize that. At the end of this year, success as a teacher will be how well did you care for your students, right? They will forget the the Zoom lesson, the Google Meets lesson that didn't work well. They will forget that time you did Jamboard and it froze up and it and it wasn't working. But what they'll remember is the grace that you showed them when they turned in something late. They'll remember the way you continue to build relationships, even though you weren't physically there, you know, they'll remember the fact that you took creative risks as a teacher and found ways that they could own the learning. That's, I think, ultimately at the end of this year, what they'll, what they'll remember. And, you know, I don't think that when this year is over the, the best quarantine teaching is necessarily going to be the people who know the technology the best. It's going to be the teachers who know their students the best and who are willing to take some of those creative risks themselves as teachers so that students could have more, you know, ownership in the learning. Man, you are dropping truth bombs there, man. And that even just you saying that kind of gave me chills. I'm working on a, a video series where I'm interviewing teachers for the series and, and the question I ask them is what do you want students to remember about you 25 years from now and you just see you just oh, see teachers kind of like reflect and be like yeah it's not about 
this going well or that going well? And that's a question we all should ask ourselves all the time because that's what it's about. Yeah. I love that question. That's great. So you are just the master of visual storytelling as well. Before you hopped on, Violet and I were just talking about some of the principals and schools we serve who every time one of your sketch videos drops, they send it to the whole (laughs) staff and people are addicted to it. So why is that medium like a, a good medium to communicate information and how do you advise teachers to create visual ways of communicating to their students? Yeah. You know, I, I, one of the things I really love about, I guess, visual communication is how it like bridges the abstract and the concrete. And so, you know, one of the, one of the things I believe is that when it comes to visual communication, you don't necessarily have to be good at it, Right. Your sketches don't have to be fantastic for them to convey, you know, deeper meaning. What I love about, I guess, doing a sketch video is that it's concise, right? So the amount of time it takes to watch one is usually like two or three minutes, not, you know, 10 or 15. Um, So it's more concise. You can pack more information in there. You can be, I guess, more careful about your words. And I tend to be pretty long-winded, which you both have already seen. Um, So I love the fact that it's tight, it's condensed, it's visual. And when you combine those elements, I think it can potentially be more memorable. And, you know, students can rewind it and watch it over and over again, which is what I've, I guess what, what I've tried to do in using the sketch videos, both for blogging, but then also, you know, as a professor with my own students. I am a super fan of your sketch notes. I aspire to be like you and grow up to be you someday in your sketch noting. Um, I dabble, but I have to tell you, I showed your 25 things um, that new teachers should know to my newest educators. And it brings us to tears almost every time in that short four minute video of an entire career of education within a few moments. It's really powerful. Your craft is beautiful. Thank you. You know, and to me, that's like a fun aspect of like the... I guess the power of connected communities is like, I, you know, I made that video for my cohort because, you know, I work with the same group of uh, like 15 to 20 students for two years. Um, Although right now I'm on a a one year cohort, but um, so you really get to know your students. And when they graduated, I, I, you know, played that for our tiny cohort ceremony that we do before the big graduation. Um, and I almost didn't post that publicly cause I thought like, well, it's just for my cohort, right? Like it's just a video I made. Um, and then I love the fact that like, I mean, hearing that is so cool. Um, because I almost, you know, I almost didn't share that. I'm so glad you shared that moment and that we were able to share it with many more cohorts and that it's touching them in such powerful ways as all of your sketch notes do. Um, I, I've watched so many staffs connect and come together around your concepts and it's, it's very powerful. We, we want to ask you another sentimental question here is what do you, we hope that teachers will take from this time when things are normal? What do you hope that they'll look back and take with them in their forward progression? What I hope that teachers will take forward is to never, and not that teachers ever do take for granted the physical aspect of teaching, but, you know, my, my, I guess my hope is that when we're back to normal, teachers will recognize the power of, you know, giving a fist bump when students walk into class and physically seeing them there and going to, student plays and concerts and sporting events and, and, and recognizing the power of all of that. You know, I, I, I think a lot of teachers already did appreciate those moments, but my hope is that when we're back to normal, we really, really appreciate those moments. And then my, my other hope is that when we do move back into normal, that we can recognize that we have a group of students who, in many cases have developed self-direction and ownership while being at home and that we build on, on that. Um, and that we look at some of the good practices that happen in hybrid and virtual learning 
and we incorporate that, right? Um, you know, if there's an upside of being at home, it could be that students have had more flexibility on things like time management. And maybe we can rethink that when we, you know, get back to our normal selves. So I, I think, I guess what it, what it would be would be to, to move forward and to never take for granted the things that we have lost so far that we're going to get back. Um, but then also to recognize that during this period, we did experiment, we did innovate, we did improve, we did find new, new ways to, to teach. And let's figure out how to do that when we redefine what normal actually looks like. That, yeah, I can't think of a better last piece of content question there. I, I a thousand percent agree that there's a ton of good stuff that will come of this if we look at it in that way. Uh, I would love just, you have, your website is just a, really, you call it certain things toolkits and it is like a one-stop shop for teacher help. So I would love if you could tell us where our listeners can go to learn from and with you and what do you have on your website now with a distance learning toolkit? Yeah, so I would love for you to join me. Um, you know, uh, if you check out spencerauthor.com, you'll see there's a toolkit there. There's a free ebook. Um, there's a, a suite of assessments. There's some mini projects. Um, you can find all of those in, you know, at spencerauthor.com. Um, if you teach ELA, um, I also have a lot of video writing prompts. So if you check out um, videowritingprompts.com, you can download any of those for free. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to be putting out a new one this week, although I'm realizing that this will come later. So it'll already be out. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, spencerauthor.com, you can find all the different resources there. And um, if you don't follow me on Twitter, it's at Spencer Ideas. And um, if you could subscribe to my YouTube channel, that might be something else to check out. Uh, and that is SpencerVideos.com. Amazing. We will link to all that and more in the show notes. Uh, Violet, anything else for him before we let him sign off? This was incredible. You're just truly remarkable. And thank you for giving those insights to our listeners, because I know that they're leaving this podcast feeling better and more excited to dive in tomorrow. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, let's close up shop. Violet, what did you learn? Oh, there are about 80 quotes I would love to lift right now. But if I had to choose just one snippet, I kind of love the spork analogy. Mm. I I just spent so much time in the last seven months trying to help educators embrace the reality that we're living in to be able to adjust and elevate and become so much more flex- flexible in their thinking. Hybrid learning is kind of a spork. We, we know how to use a spoon and we know how to use a fork, just like we know how to teach in person or we know how to teach virtually. But when we're in a hybrid, it's just kind of a spork and we have to accept that. It's the best we can do with the current restraints we have in order to keep us all safe, kind of like hybrids. So this odd utensil will do for now, but it's not our forever option. Um, it's temporary. And we really see you teachers out there metaphorically mowing down the Taco Bell Mexican pizza mm. with that work so every good. single day so good. even though you thought this year you would have that regular old fork to eat with so i mean truly though i've seen educators do some remarkable things that never they never would have tried if it wasn't out of necessity this year and these circumstances are truly driving like major innovation within classrooms and mindsets and even creation of new systems and i'm excited to see after we get post covid the caliber of educators and innovative thinkers that come out of this time of necessity of change. But Ben, like, tell me what, what hit you? What resonated with you? Yeah, uh, the spork was incredible. I really liked it. Sticking with his amazing food analogies, the food truck analogy totally resonated with me that, yes, we could really kind of pride ourselves in <clears throat> being this established restaurant that has this awesome menu that's always worked, or we could go to the people where they're at and we could be that really nimble, flexible food truck that picks two or three things that we're going to crush and be amazing at and it delivers it to the people where they are it's going out into the community and so i'm just encouraged again by how many teachers i've seen become that sporky food truck uh and that's incredible let's embrace that sporky food truck right yes (laughs) 
gotta love it. That is the episode title for sure. The Sporky Food Truck with Jen Spencer. <laughs> It'll pull a lot of viewers in yes, for sure. For sure. I, I, another huge thing with John Spencer for, that was cool for me after studying so many of his works and trying to implement them with educators was hearing the definition from him of empowered learners and thinking about how we can elevate the threads of empowered learning in person or blended or hybrid. Um, and Ben, tell me which of those elements really got you hyped up. Yeah, to, when I think of empowered learners, I, th- I think of choice and voice. And just more than any other time in the history of education, we have that opportunity to give our kids choices in how they show what they learn. And so that that really excites me. And I know that, you know, when he talked about it's not a ladder that you climb to success anymore, it's a maze. And students need to learn how to make choices and learn where their voice fits in the world. And that's how our students are going to move from that require to desire. So that really resonated with me. When you think about his different aspects of empower and, and hybrid, all all that kind of stuff, Violet, which one which one pops to your mind? I mean, I love voice and choice, and I those are ones that I work with all the time. But I really feel like creating assessment capable learners is so vital in this time. It, it's really what's going to make us so impactful. Um, are the kids assessing their own learning and being part of that process, or are they waiting to be assessed? I think that has been a really great guiding question in this time and gathering that valuable information around where students are, where they're going, as well as planning for how to support or scaffold their road to success and getting to that goal is is just so imperative. And knowing your kids and helping them own their growth is, I just feel like, a component that we all have to own and have to extend in our classroom. Yeah, that's so right. And you're so awesome. Thank you for being here, Violet. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, could you share this episode with a friend? And if you liked learning from Violet, where can they go to learn with you? Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter at uh, Christensen, Christ E-N-S-E-N, or at C3 Podcast, which is at C3 Coaches, or listen anywhere you get your podcast to C3 Connecting Coaches Cognition Podcast. It's, it's for coaches, administrators, or educators around learning to be better coaches for one another and for our students. And I truly believe that everyone in education is a coach of some sort and that everyone needs a coach. So we want to be there for you. We'll get you some of that. Uh, This is the part of the show where you tell everyone to have a great generic time of day. Have a great generic time of day. 